Hello, hello, and welcome to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'll be answering your questions about how to open up the discussion with new partners, friends, and family all about sex, even when it comes to kinks and polyamory. I'm not saying you've talked to your grandmother about sex, but hey, you might just learn something new. I'll also be sharing my interview with Emily Percival Patterson, where we talk about trans birth care in Canada and what you should know, no matter your gender identity and expression or whether or not you want to have kids. I'll also be sharing a bit about my own journey on deciding whether or not to have children. No, I I don't have them yet. And why people feel it's okay to ask about your sex life in the context of, so, are you going to have kids? But first, today in sex. I just read the summer edition of Today's Parent. It's a magazine that my sister subscribes to because, as you guessed, she's a parent. Amongst all of the how-tos on how to make the nursery as picture-perfect as possible and a confession of, I wanted a big family, then I met my kids, my sister found an article about sex after having a baby. She then specifically brought me the magazine because she thought it would be interesting for the podcast. And yes, Jillian, you were right. In the article, written by Leah McLaren, I know, excellent name, Leah talks about how so many people asked her about her sex drive when she was pregnant, and even more so after she gave birth. It was like everyone and their dog wanted to know if she was getting laid and if it felt different, the same, better, worse, etc. after having a baby. As she described it, she experienced the joy of a small human driving a Mack truck through my pelvic floor, and she says that having a baby often massively and irrevocably messes with a woman's sex drive. Not just our sexual appetite, but also our bodies in every aspect of the way that we think about sex. Now, while she uses gender-specific language throughout the article, she does have a disclaimer stating that it's not entirely fair to generalize about any experience as wildly diverse as birth, sex, and motherhood. Not all new parents are heteronormative, cisgendered couples, and she goes on to say that in the article, she is definitely making assumptions about people's experiences, but this is based on the experts that she talked to, from erotic experts and sex coaches to counselors and hypnotherapists, and they talk about lower libido and disinterest in sex as a really common experience for folks with vulvas who have recently had children. Now, having a child is a huge life change, and not wanting to have sex immediately afterwards is totally understandable for weeks and months after, and it can even be painful depending on what that birth experience was like. The article goes on to outline the hormonal changes your body is going through, particularly for breastfeeding parents, and wanting to feel desire again, how to move forward, and finally, how to recognize our evolving identities. I'm not a parent, but I hope to be one one day, and I found this last piece of the article particularly hopeful and compelling. Leah talks about after having a baby, she realized that so much of what she found to be sexy or desirable was, in her words, crudely performative and socially conditioned. Like many people, her experience had been centered around her partner's pleasure and not her own, on society's perceptions of sexiness and not her own sense of it within herself. As she said, I was done with acquiescence done with waxing and plucking and exercising myself into submission just so I could be allowed to be sexy. I was done with feeling that the only pleasure I truly deserved was a pleasure of pleasing a man and that anything else was shameful and dangerous. Now regardless of whether you're going to have a baby or become a parent, 
tapping into our own pleasures and our own sense of joy in our bodies is vital. And getting away from what Leah said, the shameful and dangerous narratives that society keeps telling us about multiple different ways of gender and sexual expression. Hopefully we can all work towards shaking off this shame and fully embracing our own sexual journeys, wherever that may lead. And now let's get to your calls. Hello, when you say that we should talk more about sex with our parents and our friends, I'm just curious, what exactly do you mean by that? Like, how much details do you think one person share? Like, I never actually talk about sex with anybody but the partners I have. And so I, like, I'm, I don't really know how to even talk about sex with members of my family. This is a great question, and the hard thing is that it really depends. Even me, as someone who has literally spent years researching sex and is training to be a sexual health educator, it can be awkward to talk about sex with my family. Yes, I'm a sexual being, but I'm also my parents' daughter and my siblings' little sister, so how much do they really want to know, and how much do we really want to share? What I'm advocating for is more honest and open conversations about sexuality with those who first taught us about sex and our bodies. Even if your parents, guardians, or siblings never have an explicit conversation with you about sex, they've taught you a lot about what it means to behave in the world and what relationships look like. This all impacts how we understand ourselves as sexual beings and how we interact with others. But it's still awkward. I don't mean you have to give them a play-by-play of your latest sexual escapades, but rather indicate that you're willing to have conversations about relationships. In the last episode of the podcast, Jackie talks about in our interview that framing conversations around healthy relationships is a great way to start that conversation. For me, I like to put it out there to my family and friends that Levi and I are talking about having kids or how our communication as a couple has changed over the past six years. I want to learn from them, but also indicate that that they want to talk about something in their own relationships, or maybe even about their sexuality, that I'm a very willing listener. Even when we're not talking explicitly about sex, there's a lot we can learn about how we communicate, how we actually hear and understand each other, and on top of all that, we can understand ourselves better by chatting with the people who influence most, our family and friends. Lastly, there's a great phrase that Dan Savage uses all the time on his podcast, The Savage Lovecast, about your chosen family. These are the people who you have formed really strong relationships with, and while they can include members of your biological family, they can extend far beyond that into those we feel safe with and those who we feel seen with and who sees us and we see them. So depending on who you are and what kind of relationship with have your family, your biological family, or chosen family, these may be the people that you turn to to have these conversations. Really what I'm saying is, the more we talk about it, the less awkward it will get. Trust me. Hi Leah, I've been loving your podcasts and I finally got up the courage to send in some of my questions. A little bit of background on myself is that I am currently single, female, and bi-curious and also curious about polyamory. I was recently, about six months ago, out of a long-term relationship where we didn't necessarily explore our sexuality Um, It was very vanilla, mostly because previously I had trouble with pain during sex and um, that stemmed from a lot of 
not having confidence in my body. Um, but now I am ready to explore my sexuality, but I have no idea where to start. Um, it definitely helps that I just moved to a very progressive and accepting city. So I guess my first question is, I am the type of person who likes to share a lot about myself. So it makes other, feel, other people feel comfortable also opening up about um, some more intimate topics. So I'm wondering if you have any recommendations on how to navigate and normalize alternative sexual preferences and also when to know when it may or may not be helpful to have these important conversations. My second question is kind of similar to what I touched on in my introduction, um, but I just am wondering if you have any advice on where to begin or start to look to find out what you like in terms of kinks and um, just generally what you may be into if you're kind of feeling overwhelmed by all the different sexual preferences out there. I'm also wondering that if you do find a kink that is relatively rare or taboo, how do you bring it up to a partner and or find someone who is already into that kink without putting yourself out there? Um, I'm also wondering if you just recommend resources such as books on this topic. And my third and last question is if you have any recommendations on how to talk to a new partner or current partner about an interest in polyamorous relationships, especially during a pandemic, even if long-term goals lean towards monogamy and it's just something that you want to explore currently. Well, thank you so much, and I hope this message wasn't too long, and I'm excited to hear what your thoughts and answers are to some of these questions. Thank you for so many good questions. As I was thinking about and doing some research about your questions, I've realized that a lot of what I want to say pertains to each question you asked, so this is my attempt to answer your lots of wonderful questions into one trying-to-be-concise response. So first off, normalizing conversations about sex is what I am all about and trying to foster as part of this podcast. And talking about and exploring our desires and kinks is definitely a part of that. But what does that look like in real life? You don't go from not talking about sex at all to unrolling your kinks and desires with sexual partners because it's an ongoing journey and you need to learn how to have these conversations and hopefully many conversations, not just one. One of the great things about the world we live in is our access to the internet. And obviously not everyone has great access, but for a large group of people, we do have access to wonderful resources online. Get rid of all of the trolls and the misinformation out there. There's a lot of really great information and ways to find community. For example, FetLife is an amazing online platform, and it's marketed as like Facebook, but run by kingsters like you and me. It's a great resource to connect with folks, discuss various kinks and fetishes, and it has safety measures built in so it's easy to block people and even report them. There's even a kinktionary on there, which is super helpful if you're new to the kink communities and you want to figure out the lingo. I've put a link to the website in the episode description, and once you make a free account, you can really easily access it on your phone, computer, whichever you have. I also found a great website called Submissive Guide, and while it is primarily about BDSM, which stands for Bondage and Discipline, Dominance and Submission, and Sadism and Masochism, it has some awesome articles about how to meet kinksters in your local area, how to stay safe, and what is the etiquette when you're entering into the kink community. Of course, this is also linked in the episode description, and I highly recommend you check it out. 
online is a great place to start these conversations, and it can help facilitate those in-person conversations as well. We can sometimes feel insecure or vulnerable sharing our desires and our sexual preferences, even amongst our friends, because we just don't know how people will react. Or we can overshare and end up telling someone a lot more than we meant to. I have been in both camps, and it's a fine balance trying to figure out when to hold back and when to bare our souls to someone. Our first thought should be about our safety and how someone might react to these expressions of, in bunny ears here, non-normative sexuality. I think starting with those we trust before moving into more public conversations will make you feel better about having these conversations and you'll have practice about how to navigate some still very taboo subjects. For myself, I started having more honest conversations about sexuality with my close friends and that translated into feeling more confident in discussing things with my sexual partners. Then that led to being more candid with my family members and while it has sometimes gotten to me into trouble, not everyone wants to talk about masturbation and erectile dysfunction after only five minutes of knowing each other, it has primarily been very rewarding because I'm trying to indicate the people that I'm a safe person to discuss sexuality with. And I'm trying to be more explicit about that. And it's something that Percy and I talk about in our interview. And I'm really glad that they bring up some really important points about if you're going to create a safe space to talk about these things, you need to be really explicit in indicating that to people. Is this a safe space for trans folks to talk about their identity, to feel safe in this space to talk about their sexual expression? Is this a safe space for LGBTQ plus folks, for queer folks, for all sorts of different folks? So I'm really working on not just saying this is a safe space for everyone, but really saying that even as a white cisgender woman, I'm really going to try to be explicit in how I'm creating a safe space and how I'm working towards making it a safer space by bringing on folks who have more expertise than I do and bringing on more diverse voices so we can create a better, stronger community to combat all of that garbage and noise that we're hearing in the world right now. As I said, I'm trying to indicate the people that I am a safe person to discuss sexuality with. I try and talk openly about being bisexual, about diverse gender expressions, and I especially try to speak up when I hear something that I don't agree with or that I know simply isn't true. Even if folks don't want to share their stories or sexual preferences with me, I'm always trying to normalize conversations about sex, so maybe when they do want to talk to someone, they might think of me. And caller, you could start creating that space so that you could be that safe person for someone else. What is difficult, though, but is getting more mainstream and normalized is polyamory. A lot of folks are still pretty uncomfortable with acknowledging polyamory, much less discussing it as an option, because coupled sex is so ingrained in so many Western societies. In fact, one of the studies that I referenced in my PhD specifically discusses the social pressure to perform coupled sex and the immense negative attitudes towards non-coupled sex, basically masturbation or sex with more than two people. I've linked the book in the episode description that discusses our understanding of sexuality throughout our lives, and the title of it, it's just brilliant. It's called Sex for Life, From Virginity to Viagra, How Sexuality Changes Throughout Our Lives. I mean, I have a whole episode where I talk about how I don't like the term virginity, but I mean, you gotta love the alliteration virginity to Viagra. So for this, I will let it slide. Now, from my own experience, friends' experiences, and in the research, polyamory can be really difficult to navigate, but it can open up some incredible doors and emotional depth that maybe you didn't know that you had. 
There are more and more books coming out about polyamory, open relationship, and ethical non-monogamous relationships, and I highly recommend reading at least one of them on your polyamorous journey. The two most popular are The Ethical Slut and More Than Two, A Practical Guide to Polyamory, both of course linked in the episode description. And they offer some great advice about how to open up conversations with existing partners, new partners, and how to communicate, communicate, communicate. Sorry, did I say communicate? Communicate. And during a pandemic, polyamory, really, it's it's not advised. And we really have to do our best to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 for ourselves and our communities. So instead, this might be a time to develop emotional and sexual connections online before we're allowed to be together again. The pandemic has changed a lot about how we exist in sexual romantic relationships, and my best advice is to be safe and to get creative in how we find new ways to connect with each other. Even going on Tinder, Bumble, Hinge, or Her is a great way to start connecting with people and setting up virtual dates. If you and your partner are interested in pursuing a relationship together, or even just seeing who is out there, it is also super hot to have that conversation and see who you might be attracted to through these apps. But I feel like I'll need an entire episode just about polyamory, so don't worry, this is just a teaser of a much longer conversation to come. So listeners, if you have questions about polyamory or know someone that I should definitely have on the show to talk about polyamory, send me a message or voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or even send me a message on Instagram at leahtidy250. And thank you so much for your questions today. I am really excited to share part one of my interview with the brilliant Emily Percival Patterson all about their research on trans birth care in Canada. Normally, my interviews are about 30 minutes long, but I was fortunate enough to not only talk to Percy about their work, but also about their lovely partner and CEO of Spark Clarity, Clary Chambers, who I will also be featuring on the show. In part two of our conversation, coming out in the next episode of Love Doctor, we'll be chatting about sexual orientation and getting the scoop on Percy and Clary's relationship. You know, like who asked who out, who said I love you first, and who initiates sex more. So without further ado, here is part one of my conversation with Percy. Okay, well, hi, how are you? How are you doing? Yeah, good. I just spent the last bit trying to do some formatting on my massive, massive document. But, right? uh, you know, like those like little things, like trying mm-hmm. to make it look good. Also trying to make it easy to read, you know, the yeah. formatting makes such a difference. And if it's just like 50 pages of black and white text with like very little anything else like no one wants to read that yeah <laughs> try to like put in some more like subheadings and like format it and make it look pretty yeah <laughs> they won't just hate themselves by the time they're at the end of reading <laughs> no they won't it'll be great but i know it's one of those things like doing those little tasks that i love doing i'm like well clearly i have to work on my table of contents <laughs> this is very important job <laughs> but i'm like i'm doing work i'm just not like doing the hard work of like the writing yeah, right now exactly oh. exactly you nailed it that's exactly what i was working on <laughs> right totally very fair okay so so percy and and you prefer i call you percy throughout the yeah, pie? Yeah, okay that okay that's how i feel like we like first introduced to each other so i'm like yeah. sweet that's what i'm gonna go <laughs> with it's kind of a funny thing where like when i moved i my like legal name is emily and mm-hmm. i have never particularly loved it to be honest like i don't hate it but i don't love it right. and then also i found like when i'd go to something there was usually like six white girls named emily like it's <laughs> like, it's a very common name for 
are, you know, kid, like kids born like the early 90s. So, yeah, totally. so I just like never really loved it. And then my Instagram handle is like Percy Patters. And so when Claire and I started dating, she was like tagging me and everything like with the Instagram handle. And so then a bunch of her friends just like thought my name was Percy. Mm. Like my last name is Percival. So like that's where it comes from. Right. Mm. So anyways, yeah. <laughs> I like, I like Percy, but like names are complicated and it's kind of a, we're figuring out how, like, I don't know how it all works, but basically I go by either, but I prefer Percy. <laughs> yeah. Good. I like Percy when I was, yeah, when I was reading your, uh, your handle. And so it was a mutual friend of ours that got us first connected. And I feel like Jess maybe referred to you as Emily, but I think like that's how she knew you when she first met you. Yeah. Totally. Right? And so, like, even when we were chatting, she's like, oh, Emily, da da da. I'm like, yeah, Percy, da da da. I'm like, so, but we knew that we were talking about the same person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, all good. That's great. That's great. So, I feel like this would be a good time for you because we're just talking about, you know, formatting papers and things like that. So, what, <laughs> what are you working on right now? Like, tell, tell me, it can be longer than elevator pitch, but like, you know, the elevator pitch of like what it is that you do. Sure. Um, well, I guess when I think about like what I do, I think the primary thing that I try and do is like cultivate and invest in community. Mm. And so I definitely see the research that I'm doing as an extension of that and maybe a less traditional form of like community care, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am currently the lead researcher on the trans birth care in Canada study, mm-hmm. uh, which is a study that I'm conducting as like the the work for my master of science. So I am a candidate um, at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Um, And then the program that I'm in is a master of science in international public health. And Mm -hmm. then I'm specializing in sexual and reproductive health, which Mm -hmm. is a whole mouthful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So at the moment, I am like in the process of writing up my dissertation. So the study has concluded and um, we had 10 really incredible participants. And essentially, I interviewed people who identify as trans and I use that as like an umbrella term for Mm -hmm. a number of trans identities such as non-binary, two-spirit, gender fluid, gender queer, gender creative, um, as a host of trans identities. Mm -hmm. Um, but essentially folks who identify as trans who have given birth within the Canadian healthcare system. And if you think about how we access our healthcare system, it's very gendered. And mm-hmm. then when you think about obstetrical care, it's like the most gendered division of our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So for folks who don't identify as women, um, I wanted to know about their experiences accessing care that really should be available and offered to everybody without mm-hmm. distinction, but is very, very gendered. So I wanted to know about their experiences of care, both to, you know, see what kind of care they're receiving and how they're finding receiving it, um, but also to make recommendations for other healthcare providers. Um, And when you go into research, you don't necessarily, you don't want to bias your results, right? Mm -hmm. So I went in wanting to learn about their experiences. um, And the majority of my participants had really positive experiences, which Mm -hmm. is fantastic. Mm -hmm. At least positive experiences with their primary care providers. Right. Um, and of course, you interact with many, many people over the course of like a pregnancy, birth, postpartum, other than your primary care provider. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of my participants had really positive relationships um, and experiences with their primary care providers. So one of the things that I'm really looking forward to publishing is some really beautiful and incredible examples of like what trans positive trans inclusive obstetrical care looks like, mm-hmm. um, because much of the literature on that topic 
up to now have been examples of really negative care um, or kind of mediocre care and have only kind of theorized or suggested what really positive care might look like. So Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to presenting a body of work that includes really positive experiences of care and then also includes discussions of the difference those that like positive care made for them mm-hmm. in their lives and in their experiences. So yeah, that's kind of that's what I'm working on at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and it, it has been really impactful for me to do. And I'm really looking forward to finishing writing up and submitting the dissertation, and hopefully submitting for publication. And um, which is a long process that I know you must know lots about as a fellow academic. It's not a, a quick thing at all. <laughs> Yeah, two things that I really want to pick up on. The first first thing, unfortunately, you were saying before, like it can be quite a process to going from doing the research to actually getting it published. And I was actually at a conference for sexual health last year when we were allowed to, you know, be in rooms together, yeah. and uh, <laughs> which was great. I think about it now. I'm like, that was wild. I just met these people and hung out and hugged them and we drank wine together. I'm like, what a weird <laughs> world. But um But we were talking about how too often from when research is conducted to when it actually becomes like public knowledge and when it's actually used is usually a delay of like 17 years. And it's like, oh, like that's like so disheartening. And yeah, you're right. Like as a fellow academic, I like love academia and I also like hate academia. I feel like, oh my God, it's so pretentious. Why does it take so long? (laughs) Right. But I really love you talking about you're adding original research and it's about what are you adding to the conversation and the fact that you can add something that's joyful to say other people have theorized about having these positive relationships and let me tell you that like from the voices of participants themselves it's like these are the things that made my experience positive so i think anytime you go into research you have some hunches about what it'll be like so did that surprise you when you started talking to folks Um, it's interesting. I think yes and no. I think a lot of the discourses that we are fed about queer and trans lives are ones of tragedy. And Mm -hmm. they're ones of struggle. And, and, you know, from representation in like film and media, but also to academia. And, you know, I read quite a few papers (laughs) over the course (laughs) of this degree, like on this topic. And, you know, I... At the end, usually an author will disclose a little bit about themselves. You know, this Mm -hmm. is who I am. These are my affiliations, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so some papers say, like, this is who I am. This is my gender identity. Like, this is how I exist in the world basically outing themselves at the end of their paper. But I was like, I know. I knew from three paragraphs in that this Mm -hmm. is written by a queer or trans researcher because there's a stark difference between how they approach the subject matter. And Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, a lot of research and a lot of depictions of queer and trans people approaches our lives from, like, a deficit mindset where Mm -hmm. we assume that it's going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. And... For I am absolutely not trying to say that these aren't difficult. I know that from my own experience. I know that from my community's experience. Absolutely. But I think that, like, we shouldn't assume that it will be. Mm -hmm. um, And we should leave room for a potential and a potential future where queer and trans people just have joyous lives. And we don't exist under, like, the weight and all the work that it takes to, like, exist in a world that, you know, butts up against you. Mm -hmm. So I would say that, like, Yes, there was part of me that even myself had a bit of that deficit mindset where I was approaching wanting to do this work. Like, I want to 
you know, if bad care is happening, like, I want to expose it, and, like, Mm. that's not okay, and also, what would positive care look like? So, I think that, like, I held those biases even within myself. One thing that is interesting is, you know, we both have grown up in British Columbia, and parts of British Columbia are super open, and also, like, super queer. So, I think I was also... I was curious to see how the geographies played out. Mm. Um, And most of my participants are from British Columbia. Mm. And all of my participants who had resoundingly positive care are from British Columbia. And I don't think that that's necessarily a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would say that, like, I wasn't sure what I wasn't sure what the results were going to be, but I definitely was battling even that deficit mindset myself as like an internalization of those stories that like were told about queer and trans lives for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's also something that I've been trying to be really critical of as I'm writing out my dissertation and being clear about like what the challenges are. And I saw a really mm-hmm. fantastic post um, recently in conjunction with like a lot of the discussions around Black Lives Matter that was calling on people to be really specific when you're describing barriers like this Mm. post was was written by a black woman said like being black is not a barrier to me white Mm. supremacy is a barrier like Mm. being queer is not a barrier or a deficit for me like heteronormativity and transphobia are the barriers Mm -hmm. and to name them that way which i think is really important because it's true Um, and i have found that in my life too like i've had people kind of comment like oh like you're queer like wow like that must be really and you're from a small town like that must be really challenging and i'm like you know it's not challenging i love my life i love being queer and especially when i can kind of hold up this incredible relationship that i'm in that brings me so much joy and is so amazing and mm-hmm. I'm like, how can this be? Like, this is amazing. Like, this right? Is this is ever. my challenge. You're like, yeah, uh, yeah. have you like, met Clary? <laughs> like, yeah, come on. Have you met Clary? Because <laughs> uh, I got news for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, the challenging part is other people. Yeah. Um, that, right? Always. So mm-hmm. I think, like, I'm trying to be really mindful of that as I'm writing up the dissertation. And that is one of those differences that you notice in studies that are written by queer and trans researchers versus the ones that aren't kind of just like approaching it from that deficit mindset or approaching it from a love and understanding of like the queer and trans community. And then kind of putting all of the like bare actual barriers mm. on blast a little bit and being like, this is the problem. Like, it's yeah. on us. Like, you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I like how you frame that because it too often is taught as like a deficit model. And I think when you name it, it's like, oh, you've overcome so many challenges. But actually, it's really radical to celebrate like joy, like trans joy and black joy and like, you know, disabled joy. And it's like, well, why is that, though? Like, really, it's all of these barriers. We're like, we're people. Shouldn't we like we all face adversity and we all hopefully feel joy but we're realizing that these barriers, they make those situations so different. So it's not like I was, you know, born a certain way and express like, you know, my gender or sexuality or whatever in a certain way. And that's what's made it difficult. It's like, no, how you react to it and how society is framed that that's going to make it harder. And that's what Absolutely. I yeah, really want to talk to you about your work, because like even as and I guess we, we can see each other, but obviously callers, you can't see us. But like, you know, as like a white cisgender and able-bodied woman, like, and someone who does want to be a parent one day, I was like, this is something that um, I want to know about and I want to be aware of because so often, like, I just totally have the privilege to, oh, if I need to book something with my OBGYN, 
then there aren't going to be like any assumptions when I walk in. And I'm very femme presenting too. And so being able to think about birth care beyond those gender binaries, I think is so helpful. And I'm like, no, this isn't like a trans issue. This isn't everyone like topic and moving it away from just like issue too as well. Like this is a concept. When we make strides to make anything more inclusive, um, regardless of the community that you're trying to include, it usually benefits everybody involved, you know? And disability inclusion benefits everyone. When you mm-hmm. make a space more accessible, everybody benefits. And also, when you make a space that is more gender-inclusive, and to be specific, when I say gender-inclusive, I don't mean absent of gender. Mm-hmm. No one's trying to get rid of gender. Like, it's okay. Like You don't, yeah. you don't have to get rid of your gender. That's not the goal. Mm-hmm. The goal is to be critical of the ways that we expect and assume that gender will play out in somebody's life Mm -hmm. and like also in our world. And a lot of those assumptions are usually pretty negative. You know, they're rooted in patriarchy, they're rooted in racism, and they're Mm -hmm. rooted in inequality. So like, why are we so desperately trying to cling to these things? You know, like Mm -hmm. really patriarchal ideas of how men should exist hurt men as well. Yeah. Really gendered assumptions of just like how gender should play out in our lives like they hurt everybody not just trans and gender diverse folks so i think that like i think it's an interesting topic mm-hmm. i think that it plays out in our lives whether you realize it or not and i think within spaces that traditionally have been very very heavily gendered including like the realm of birth and birth work mm-hmm. it can feel like we're losing our basis for everything if we mm-hmm. kind of give that gendered lens up but it doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being like, if I say, oh, by the way, apples exist. And you're like, what? And you're like, it doesn't mean oranges don't no longer exist. I'm just <laughs> letting you know that apples also exist. You're like, but I've only ever had oranges. And you're like, well, you can still have oranges. You can still have oranges. I'm just saying, like, apples also exist. So our produce yeah. section, you know, we're going we're gonna to have apples too. Like, mm-hmm. that's a really simple metaphor. But it's applicable because people kind of panic. They're like, well, you know, if men are having babies, um, if non-binary people, whoever they are, are having babies, like, what does that mean for me as a woman? And Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily like always identify as a woman, but that's predominantly who's accessing birth care and birth spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that there's a lot of hesitation there because there's a lot of fear there, Mm -hmm. but making spaces more inclusive. And I, I devoutly believe this benefits everybody mm-hmm. if you do it in a way like if you do it in the right way yeah um, i i hear a lot of like sometimes like kind of you know those internet trolls and they're like oh, oh well i don't know they just like put forward these scenarios that are like so overblown for what you're actually asking for you know they're, yeah like, like oh like, i'd really love a gender neutral bathroom they're like oh well i should just go poop in the lawn you're like what like that's what i asked for like, no to that place you know yeah so i think like a lot of that happens sometimes mm-hmm. um but yeah in terms of making the birthing space and birthing care more accessible, I think the first step is just acknowledging that whether you, like, regardless of your opinion on other people's lives, there are people who are not women who get pregnant, mm-hmm. who give birth, who have babies. You know, there are people who are not women who menstruate. Mm-hmm. There are people who are not women who require abortions. There are people who are not women who, like, need that obstetrical care and, like, gynecological care. 
like regardless of your opinion on that. So I think like the first step is just kind of holding space for those other people as well. And it doesn't, it's not pie. Like it does not feel like taste on a pea. You don't have to cut your piece smaller mm-hmm. in order to include other people. I think that's kind of just like the first step. And um, there's a trans man named Tristan Reese. He's very vocal online mm-hmm. about his experiences. And he's an educator. And he wrote like the most beautiful post like i was in tears after reading it mm. um and it's this beautiful photo of him and he's pregnant and he's like eating a freezy on his front doorstep or whatever mm. um, and i feel comfortable sharing this because he has a public instagram account and has shared this publicly yeah. um but the caption is a really the caption starts out with like i don't know how to tell women that i'm not a threat to them mm. and it has like a really beautiful discussion about opening up spaces that are traditionally women-centered Mm-hmm. like birth care to include others and that that doesn't have to be a threat to women mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's like a really important thing to keep in mind when we're discussing making spaces more inclusive is that the goal is a space that's more inclusive for everybody mm-hmm. and that that doesn't necessarily that doesn't put you at risk if you're yeah. a person of privilege in that scenario already yeah and that's and so unfortunate that that comes up so often in discussions about trans rights like it's always the you know talking about like bathrooms it's like oh no it's it's for safety and you're like what like i don't understand that at all and what i what i think is so interesting to think about as well is i love your <laughs> explanation of like apples and oranges and you know the produce section is just now that much more diverse they were always like understandings of self in different way were always there and now we have more names for them and so we can understand and feel empowered by choosing the words that work well for us and i think what's what you know what can be like tough for for cisgender folks being like oh my gosh like gender is this whole thing we have to question is like well yeah, like, I think it's probably good, so regardless of your gender identity, to think about why do I have this understanding of myself and why do I express myself in a certain way? Like, and how it, I think it just shakes your fundamental understanding of self. And it's like, yeah, I can understand why you'd be scared by having a conversation. Like, we had talked briefly in our pre-interview, pre-podcast interview, just about how when um, my minor is in gender studies and how realizing that socialization and these social structures around us influence how you live your life. And you're like, oh, no, but I'm an individual and I have free will. And you're like, you do. However, where did you get these ideas from? And so that can be hard to contend with. And this is not at all to say that, you know, cis folks who use that as their, like, playing field to make all sorts of, like, transphobic comments and things. No, that's not what we're saying. We're just saying, yeah, it's going to take work to understand what that means because it calls into question your own lived experience. But like you said, it's not a threat. It's actually going to make you more aware of who you are as a person and how you move through the world. And if you're aware of holding space for folks to feel comfortable in it, then wouldn't you also feel more comfortable? Like, to me, it just seems like a like a win-win-win conversation, like all, all around, wouldn't that just be better? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that you make a good point about, you know, that like diverse gender expression and relationships have always existed. And mm-hmm. I think it's an important thing to note that there's, there is a lot of dialogue around like, you know, these people have always existed and now we have names for them and that's why there's so many folks now. And I want to like also bring up that there were names for those people before. 
And there's a really great website. It's called like gender diverse cultures or something like that, mm. um, where you can go and there's a really great like global Google map with all these little pinpoints and you can click on it and learn about diverse gender expression and diverse like gender roles within mm. di- different cultures pre-colonization. And yeah. let me tell you, every single continent has at least one, mm-hmm. if not multiple. Every single one, from Siberia to Africa to the like Polynesia to North America, like every single one. Mm-hmm. So when we think about to, like our current labels of like trans or gay or lesbian, all, all of those are new words that we have are using to describe and differentiate ourselves within this system that European colonization has spread around the world. Mm-hmm. So there. Like, we, I think that it's important to keep that in mind. And mm-hmm. it also kind of just, like, makes you realize how much, like, as humans, we just decide how things are. And we kind of make up our own realities. Yeah. So there, there was one idea about how gender and relationships work that was violently spread around the world via colonization, along with a host of other things. But, yeah. like, sorry, I mean, colonization also spread other things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now that is the legacy that we're living with. So mm-hmm. I am... I am a person of British ancestry. Like it was my ancestors that were colonizers. Like I will be very clear about that, but I see a lot of beautiful work both in like individuals who I consider my family and the communities that I've had the privilege of working in who are doing a lot of work to reclaim Mm -hmm. those traditional understandings of gender and relationship pre-colonization. So I think that like, that's just like one thing to kind of keep in mind Mm -hmm. um, is that this two gendered, heterosexual idea is very much a colonial idea that has been spread um, through colonization and also through religion. So I think that's just like important to keep in mind. And then also I think it is, it can be really scary to be self-reflective, but I think that we should also normalize almost like gender journeys also for cis people. Mm. Like I think that knowing yourself better is always an advantage, but it takes a lot of time and effort. And I saw a meme that went around at the beginning of quarantine and it was like millennials, like all of a sudden actually have time to like sit alone with their thoughts. And I was like, absolutely not. I will learn to make banana bread. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go on my own gender journey right now. I'm like, Oh man. Or like, it, or like any kind of like all of our feelings that we previously had just like suppressed or now you can't ignore them. Cause we're not like sucked into these busy lives. We're all stuck at home and like, Oh no, I'll learn to make bread and yeah um but all that to say like i think that it's great to learn about who you are mm-hmm. and i think we should normalize gender journeys for cis folks and i feel like that's kind of where i am at like at the moment up until really recently i've never really questioned my like identity as a woman and then i kind of had this thought of like who would i be if i wasn't raised as a woman like how like who would I be like what are the components of myself including like how I dress how I look and the things that I think I can do or not do if I wasn't raised as a woman and I was like what like what if I would be super different what Mm. if I would like myself better like who would that person be and so I think that I'm at the moment I don't know entirely, honestly, how I identify. I've been, like, trying on a label of non-binary, but that doesn't entirely feel right to me because there's also a lot of components of womanhood that do feel good for me. Mm -hmm. But I feel like there's this, like, overarching kind of, like, question hanging in my life of, like, who would I be if I wasn't raised to be a woman? Mm -hmm. So kind of what I'm trying to do for myself is put intention and 
give myself room into like figuring that out mm-hmm. because then I feel like I can be the most authentic version of myself because I mm-hmm. think that a lot of the ways that we raise like children in really gendered ways are not great and they're mm-hmm. not supportive of like individualization and like self-efficacy and kind of flourishing into who they're meant to be right and I don't like one of the participants in the study said you know I don't really like the label non-binary because then I feel like I'm stepping away from gender and I love gender and I was like <laughs> me too like I you know I love like creating myself there's nothing wrong with gender at all and it's wonderful it can just look a lot more ways than Mm -hmm. we maybe um, realized and like that's so great and there's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that but I can I can absolutely understand kind of a fear or a hesitancy around wanting to think about that for ourselves we're getting totally off the topic of birth care but uh, but it's all related like it's, it's fascinating <laughs> yeah and i think like, i think it makes sense to feel fearful mm-hmm. i think also even for myself i had been having these feelings of like maybe i want to explore my identity a little bit more uh, and i saw a post that was like if you regularly think about the fact that you may not be cis you're not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like, uh, like, people don't generally think about that every day. <laughs> yeah. And that's not to say, like, of course, it's not a general rule, but it made me chuckle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, but I, I felt really resistant to even having that conversation with myself because I was like, well, what if I discover this whole other part about myself and then everything has to change? And like, that's really scary. And like, mm-hmm. what if how I exist in the world changes? And then that's really scary. And so, like, there's, like, there is a fear because trans people do absolutely face discrimination in Canadian society and mm-hmm. most societies around the world absolutely face violence, absolutely face, like, a host of other things mm-hmm. that other people put onto them. And, like, yeah, no one wants to sign up for that. Yeah. No one wants to sign up for the discrimination part of it. But I think that we all, like, owe it to ourselves to figure out who we are. And I think it poses, like, an important question if you think about, like, if you take away... I don't know. If you take away, like, what somebody told you women are like, mm-hmm. and you're like, like, what does being a woman mean to you? And yeah. you really think about it. And for me, I kind of felt like I was like, well, then anything could, like, you know, you just kind of realize, like, how um, fluid everything is and how mm-hmm. much something is very much created when we attach meaning to it. And you're allowed to attach meaning into your life however you want. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think that asking yourself yeah what does it mean then to be a woman and what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be non-binary and to and to and to really kind of investigate that and what that means for you and thinking about you know birth care and raising kids though like if that conversation can start sooner like how much easier would that journey be when you have that language and that space to do that and it's something you know, as I have two nephews and a niece and all very young, uh, but the oldest just turned four. And I really, I'm trying to be very cognizant of how I talk about gender and how, when I talk to him versus when I talk to my niece, what's the language that I'm using, right? And so sometimes I'll really praise him, Jack, he's the oldest one. Sometimes I really praise him when he does something that's very like, gentle or sweet. And I'll be like, that was really sweet, you know, or if he's, you know, wearing something or he loves it when um, when I'm putting on my blush in the morning, sometimes he'll be there and he wants to put the blush 
on his face. <laughs> Understandably, the brush is very soft. It feels awesome, yeah. right? And he also, like, wants to feel beautiful. So I'll put it on his face, and I was like, you look so beautiful. And just try and be really – just normalize multiple different ways to mm-hmm. – about his expression. And then same sort of thing when I'm talking to my niece. I'll praise her. I'm like, you are – like, you know, she'll do something. I'm like, oh, that was – that was really clever. Oh my gosh, you're so strong. And I just, unfortunately, we probably all have at least one story, but it's not like every day you hear girls do this, boys do this, but you are subtly told repeatedly what that is. And so kids, even from a young age, by the time they're four or five, they already know how they are supposed to, I'm doing a little bunny ears, people who are listening, uh, how are they supposed to present themselves yeah, and, and there's really good evidence that children have a pretty clear idea um, or sense of themselves, including their gender identity, by age four. And that mm-hmm. sounds really young, and I think there's a lot of people that will say, like, and I've, I've heard even my own family members say this, um, like, oh, don't confuse them. I also have nieces and nephews, and you, yeah, like, I will, you know, I remember once, like, one of my nephews was wanting his nails painted, and his dad made the comments that, oh, boys don't do that. And then I was like, well, some boys do. Mm-hmm. And very much like, well, don't confuse them. Like, don't like, don't get into it kind of thing. And I really, like, you know, children are smarter than we think they are. Mm-hmm. They are sponges. And also, they're really good at understanding things as best as they can. Mm-hmm. So if you don't give them the opportunity, like, if you have a conversation about gender to a four-year-old, it's going to look different. Or even if you have the same conversation about gender mm-hmm. to a four-year-old, a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, you could have the exact same conversation and they would understand different components of it, depending on the learning stage and that the, you know, their brain is evolving and all of that. Yeah. But they're going to understand some of it and they're not mm-hmm. necessarily going to leave confused. Mm-hmm. And I think too, like our children, and I don't have children myself, but I definitely want to, but I have spent many, many years working in child and youth care and interacting with children, so I definitely feel like I have seen a lot of children in my day. Mm-hmm. They are sponges, and they are picking up absolutely everything that they come into contact with, mm-hmm. and they're internalizing it, and they're learning it, and they're just trying to get as much as they can every single day to like, create their sense of the world. So if you are not actively putting those ideas into your child's head, other people are. Mm-hmm either directly or indirectly those little things seep in so i think you have to you have to like raise your kids on purpose yeah to be the humans that you want them to be because just assuming that they'll turn out the way you want them to it like it's that's not realistic yeah because there's like there's other ideas floating around and if you want your kids to be inclusive people to be tolerant people to have compassion for others you know, you have to you have to do that on purpose or you have to at least mm. give them like the chance to understand it. You know, and I think like that's something that I feel really grateful to kind of do for some of the children in my life to be like mm-hmm. to even for them. Like I have a gay aunt, for example, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. seeing two women partner together in a really long term healthy relationship absolutely influenced my life mm-hmm. and made coming out to my family super super easy and so I'm super glad to kind of offer that exposure and that relationship and that example to children in my life mm-hmm. including my nieces and nephews yeah. you know you know children can understand a lot more than you give them credit for mm-hmm. and you can always kind of offer a more simplistic notion and I think there's really great examples of queer parenting and mm-hmm. also like 
parents who don't necessarily identify as queer but want their children to know that there are people and families in the cup that exist in a multitude of ways mm-hmm. that are doing really great examples like there are definitely resources and examples out there for anybody that's like trying to parent children in a gender inclusive mm-hmm. way for sure mm-hmm. well and it's um oh there's so many things that i want to that i want to touch <laughs> on okay i'll go with one first so what i find interesting and what i like love talking to you about is that I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I feel like, you know, you're doing a master of science and my PhD was in applied theater, very different worlds. <laughs> but <laughs> science was never my strong suit. Let's I'll be very frank. But there's so much of what we do that is community focused. And I love how you started with that. I've been like, you know, it's about that community and children are, are part of that community. And they hopefully are going to like, inherit all of this and so it it aligns in many ways like in a previous episode i talk about one of my favorite theorists but don't worry listeners i'm going to introduce you to one of my other favorite theorists um, <laughs> i know you were all waiting for that but vygotsky he in talking about children it talks about how so, so often we're like well at this age they should be able to do this and at this age they should be able to do this or to understand conversations about gender and they're like well actually what if we create a scaffold for them we create an understanding to be like, well, we can talk about this. And if you create the frame for them to think about it, and he talks about becoming a head taller than yourself. So you're able to think about things and access higher thinking that is actually above where you should be at. Mm -hmm. And I think it, to me, it kind of, uh, in some ways relates to that deficit model of being, if saying kids will be confused by conversations about gender, then you're setting them up to be confused about conversations about gender. And if you say, actually, I'm going to meet you where you're at. We're going to have a conversation. If there's some things that you don't understand, that's okay. This isn't one conversation. This is an ongoing conversation. And it's the same with, with sexuality because hopefully it evolves over time. Like, God, like my sexuality has evolved in the last like two months, you know, like it, it's, it's an ongoing, hopefully it's a lifelong journey. And so I just, what I'm really loving about your work and us talking about it is that it starts not only with trans birth care and like this adult having this experience, but then I'm really interested to know, like, what is that experience going to be like for their child? Cause it's an intergenerational experience right like that that maybe do your do your phd or postdoc about talking to the (laughs) those same people but then talk to their kids you know like 10 years later (laughs) right yeah absolutely and quite a number of the participants in my study are raising their children gender Mm -hmm. neutral or all of them had we had some sort of discussion about how like yes like my child is assigned male at birth so we use like he him pronouns for them but you know like they're one so when they're a bit older like we'll have those kind of conversations and there will always be space for them to be whoever they are Mm -hmm. and I think that that's there's like a multitude of ways that you can approach parenting that is gender inclusive and you don't have to raise your child to control that like you can just you're as a parent there Mm -hmm. are many opportunities you're going to make a bajillion choices of how you raise your child every single day Um, but I think that giving a child a childhood that is such an integral part of their formation as a person that gives them space to be who they are, including to enact their gender in ways that feel good for them. Like what a gift Mm -hmm. that is such a gift. And so I think that's like one example 
of a really positive benefit that comes with having a parent that is trans or gender diverse or queer and doesn't have to be limited to those types of parents at all. Mm -hmm. I definitely saw from speaking to a lot of the participants the ways that they are going to take their approach to gender and being open about what gender looks like in their in their lives and applying that to their children's life. And I think that that's just like such a gift for mm-hmm. those children. Absolutely. Oh, makes me like so excited, like so excited, but like insanely like nervous to have children. So I'm like, <laughs> I just want to like surround them by interesting, open people. Thank you so much for joining me today and listening to the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of The Love Doctor, I'll be sharing part two of my interview with Percy, where we get all the juicy details about their relationship with the lovely Clary Chambers. I'll also be answering questions about sexual orientation, so if you have any questions that you want to ask, send a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com, and I will do my darndest to get it on the show. You can also check me out on Instagram or Twitter, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.